This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I come from a line of broken men. My grandfather on my father's side was an abusive alcoholic. I met him, I think, once in my life. My father was a much better man. He raised seven children, born within a nine-year span. He became a medical doctor. He, one of his proudest achievements was that he sent seven kids through college, all of them straight through in four years, which was the plan. 28 years of college. He was also married to my mom for 65 years. Well, actually, 64 years and 11 months. But my dad had his wounds. He had a lifelong struggle with profound depression. And towards the end of his life, it became debilitating. And I don't think it's inaccurate to say that he died of depression. When I accepted Jesus when I was 16 years old, I was told Jesus makes all things new. And I believe that. But the process of working that out was a lot longer and harder than I ever imagined, especially dealing with some of the brokenness from my past. But I only talk about my story because I want to put it in context of a much larger story. And that's the story of the brokenness and the restoration of humanity that's found in the storyline of the scripture and that the church proclaims Sunday after Sunday. You can't get to hardly the third page of the Bible when you run into this story of brokenness. Christians sometimes call it the fall, by which we mean the world is profoundly broken, profoundly disordered, and all of creation, not only human beings, but all of creation, and as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all of creation is groaning for our redemption. Not only human beings, but all living things are groaning for redemption. This morning, I'm going to do something a little different, something I don't think I've ever done since I've been here, and that is I want to focus in particular on the brokenness and restoration of men. Now, everything I say today is not exclusive. So you might be listening to this as a woman and go, well, that applies to me. And I would say, I hope so. Just as in later in the book of Acts, we read a story about a woman named Lydia in Acts chapter 16, and I hope men will say, I can learn a lot from Lydia. But in particular, I want to focus on one story, one life, a man named Stephen, found in Acts chapters 6 and 7. It's a story of a restored man, or a man who is seriously down the road of restoration in Christ. Now, when it comes to the brokenness of human beings, and then this morning in particular, the brokenness of men, there's, it's, it's kind of like looking at a, a house that's become broken down, a dilapidated house. The roof is caving in. The, the shutters are all sideways. The windows need to be replaced. The, the paint is peeling. Weeds have overtaken the garden. There's two reactions. Somebody could walk by and go, that house needs to be condemned. Tear it down. Get rid of it. It is too damaged. It's too toxic. It's too broken. Just tear it down. 
Replace it with what exactly? Well, we're not sure. Just tear it down. Or somebody else could walk by and go, say exactly the same things, give exactly the same diagnosis, not minimize the brokenness of that house, and yet go, that house can be restored. That house can be rebuilt. We can plant a garden there. We can paint it. We can put a new roof on. We can put new windows in. We can restore that house to its original beauty and even greater than its original beauty. The gospel that the church proclaims always ultimately takes the road of restoration. We can restore broken lives. That is the good news of the gospel. So what does that look like? When we talk about the restoration of men, what does that look like? Well, here's something I learned from Bishop Stewart, which really changed my life. He said once that the, when it comes to masculinity, manhood, the Bible doesn't give us a list, like tick, 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 tick. Here's, here's all the things you got to be. Instead, it gives us lives. It is imitative. Gives us people to imitate, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, with all kinds of personalities, with all kinds of giftings, with all kinds of stations of life. But it's imitative. So the book of Acts gives us all kinds of spiritual mothers and fathers. Today I want to focus on one spiritual father. His name is Stephen. And I want to break down uh, Acts chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. I want to break this down into four scenes. So if, you're, if this is a play, or if this is a film, or if this is a piece of narrative journalism, basically there's four scenes in Stephen's life in Acts chapter 6 through 7. And if I was giving them subheadings, I would give them the following subheadings, which are qualities of Stephen's life. Scene one, gentleness. Scene two, troubledness. Scene three, rootedness. And scene four, fullness. That is fullness of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, gentleness. It begins in verse 1 with the first conflict in this little baby new church. And the conflict isn't about doctrine. It's about people. In particular, how to take care of a vulnerable group of people who seem to be getting a little bit of the shaft in the early church. Or so it would seem to one group of people. So chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing, but this growth causes a problem. A complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's two groups of people in this early church. And they come from different cultural contexts, different cultural assumptions. And the Hellenists who are probably in the minority, feel that their widows aren't being taken care of as well as the widows in the other group of people. So they bring it to the disciples. Now, one thing you have to know about God throughout the Bible is that God has a tender, gentle heart towards vulnerable people. 
If you read Exodus, Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, you will see God specifically calling out widows and other groups of vulnerable people and saying, they don't have a voice, so I'm going to be their voice. And if you mistreat them, I promise you, terrible things will happen to you. Actually, God says that a lot throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. I care about vulnerable people. So they have to do something. This is an urgent situation. So what do they do? Well, we see the solution in verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Please understand, it's not that it's beneath them. It's just a matter of calling and focus. They know that if they don't focus on preaching the word and spreading the gospel, the church is not going to continue to grow. So, verse 3, therefore, brothers, they're actually talking to the Greek-speaking brothers, this, this Hellenist group of brothers, the one that's being slighted, the one that's probably the minority, and they let them, they, they empower them, and they say, you pick out seven people. You pick out seven men to be the ones that will oversee this ministry. And so they pick out seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. And then verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. It was a good solution. Now, the word gentleness is not used in this passage, but I do think it underlies this whole story. Because these seven men, including our man Stephen, our, our mentor, our exemplar, Stephen, is someone whose main job is to serve tables. So that's his job. So he's got an apron on, like, you know, a guy at a barbecue or somebody at a soup kitchen, and he's waiting on tables, and he's talking to widows, maybe a lot of older widows, maybe some younger widows. He's caring for the weak. He's caring for people that are vulnerable. He's caring for people who don't have power. That would require gentleness. Someone has defined gentleness, as, as it appears in the Bible, as strength under control. I like that definition because it's, it's not, it is strength under control, but I would add it's even more than that. It's strength under control on behalf of, in service of, those who are weak and vulnerable. That's what gentleness looks like. You could also call it tenderness. You could call it mercifulness. And the New Testament, in its social context, has this really radical message that gentleness is actually lifted up as a valuable virtue for women and for men. And, and the gentleness is to display to people whether they deserve it or not. See, that's part of our problem with gentleness. We think, well, I don't know if that person deserves gentleness. I don't know if they deserve my mercy. I don't know if they deserve my tenderness. But it's whether they deserve it or not. And when Paul, later in, in, in the book of Galatians, he listed the fruits of the Spirit, what, what happens when our lives are rooted in the soil of Jesus and we're filled with the Spirit, one of those is, the, is gentleness. And Jesus himself, when he described himself in Matthew chapter 11, he said, I am lowly and gentle of heart. One of the descriptions that Jesus gave himself. 
You know, I mentioned my dad. And my dad, to me, growing up, we, we never had a close relationship all our life until about 12 years ago. And then there was like this major breakthrough where I think we understood each other a lot better. And it happened when my life, my world, as I knew it, fell apart, and I never thought I would get back on my two feet again. And my dad was one of the people that the Lord brought into my life utterly unexpected, utterly the last person I thought I could count on. He was one of those people, one of the prime people, actually, who walked beside me, who was gentle, who was tender, who was merciful, who gave me a taste of God's grace. So dads, granddads, it's never too late. You never know what God's going to do when he's not done with you. I'll get back to that in a minute. So the first quality is the quality of gentleness. So if you want to be a real man, here's something, you know, you don't have to hunt elk. You don't have to kill a bear with a bow. You don't have to slit the throat of a deer. You can start with, how about volunteering res kids? How about talk to your wife about walking beside a single mother? My friend Dina says, you know, every time we talk about sanctity of life, you never talk to the men. I mean, if the men would step up, a lot of this problem would be solved, don't you think? <laughs> I had to agree with her. Actually, a woman named Frederica Matthews Green, who's done a lot of interviewing and research and post abortive women, she said that over 80% of women who had chosen to have an abortion said they would not have, had the, not, not have made that choice if they would have had one person who would, walk, who would have walked beside them. That was often the father of the child. Just one, one person. That's the virtue of gentleness. Now, as I go through these virtues, I don't want you to use any of these virtues to, like, beat up on yourself or beat up on anybody else. Like, nudge your husband and go, yeah, wish you were a little better at that one, you know. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about God's work of restoration. That's our focus. Second scene, troubledness. Chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Now, by troubledness, I mean the willingness to step into trouble. Not go looking for it, not go stirring it up, but when it comes, to step into it with all the risk that is involved in that, to step into conflict, to step into injustice, to step into pain, to step into brokenness, to step into your own sinfulness, even when it costs you. That's troubledness. I got to say, as I was thinking about this, we have whole industries that are well-funded, that are led by really smart people, that are dedicated to helping us avoid trouble, to live a trouble-free life. And a lot of them are in particular. I'm sure there's some particularly directed towards women. I don't know as much about those. I know the ones that are directed to men. 
And there's a lot of them, and they're really sophisticated, and they're really alluring, and they're really attractive. And it's really easy. We have to make decisions, hundreds of decisions throughout our life. Am I going to step into trouble, or am I going to demand that life and God keep me safe? That I live an untroubled life. Leon Cass, who's a used to be a professor at University of Chicago, a bioethicist, Jewish scholar. I read a quote this week. He said, an untroubled soul in a troubling world is a shrunken human being. In other words, there's so much trouble in the world, but if my goal is to be untroubled, that will shrink me as a human being. That will reduce me. That will dehumanize me. Did you read, did you hear our gospel reading? I you know, you know who, they, so they go into this storm. You know who set that, you know who led them into the storm? It was Jesus. He says, hey, guys, get into the boat, and he leads them right into the storm, and then he falls asleep. He leads them into trouble. Now, if you want a Jesus that's going to keep you out of trouble, he will constantly be annoying you. <laughs> it's like, I don't like you, Jesus. You're not the kind of Jesus I like. So here's Stephen. We'll get back to him now. So in chapter 6, verse 6, let me read this. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid, they laid hands on them. Oh, the things that happen when the church comes beside you and lays hands on you and prays for you. Remember William Beasley 25 years ago, Father William Beasley laying hands on me and praying for me. Some things he prayed that I did not believe, that I thought, that is impossible. That will never happen. And 22 years later, those things happened. So Stephen is doing a lot of good, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's doing all kinds of great things. He's not only just taking care of widows. He's, he's got a ministry that's creative, that's innovative, that's, uh, you know, we would call cutting edge and all kinds of things that are happening. And what happens, though, is he crosses the wrong people. He crosses some powerful people in verses 9 and 10. And then in verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They take what he says and they twist it. Now when we read the rest of chapter 7, we're going to see he's really not speaking blasphemous words against Moses or God, but they take what he's saying and they twist it. And so then they, they round him up and they bring him before the high priest. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? Now, if you were writing a TV show, you'd cut to the commercial right there and just leave it hanging. What's he going to do? Is he going to capitulate? Is he going to back down? Is he going to compromise? Is he going to look for an escape route? You may remember that Hanna-Barbera cartoon with um, Snagglepuss, the uh, pink cougar who stands upright, the thin, sophisticated pink cougar. Everybody remember him? Snagglepuss? You don't remember Snagglepuss? Thank you. Watch it on YouTube. It will be worth your afternoon entertainment. Do a little escape, guys, for 30 seconds. 
So he always he's into, he gets into these difficult situations, and then he goes, exit, stage left, Ivan. And then he leaves, and he runs away. It's the escape route. I am out of here. So Stephen has that opportunity. And then verse 1, and, and verse 2, Stephen stands up, says, hey, put a target on my chest. Brothers and fathers, hear me. I love that courage. Now, again, he's not looking for trouble, but when it knocks, he answers. Life is full of trouble, isn't it? Marriages are full of trouble. Friendships get trouble, conflict, work, sin in our own hearts, the world's injustice. There will be so many opportunities to escape, but also so many opportunities to say, Lord, help me, because I don't have what it takes right now. I don't have what it takes, but you do. So help me, Lord, to step into this. So gentleness and troubledness, they, they kind of go together. They're like, they're two virtues that we need to integrate. They complement each other. And sometimes we need more of one, and sometimes we need more than the other, no more of the other. But they both flow from the third thing, the third scene, which is the scene of rootedness, which is basically all of chapter 7, and it's really long. So I'm not going to read it, but I encourage you to read it. So chapter 7, so Peter, or, um, Stephen talks for 51 verses, and it's really long. So, you know, I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and I have a confession to make. I've never really read chapter 7. Because it's like, it's just kind of like, oh, I, I think I get this. This is Old Testament history. I read this on my way through the Bible. I kind of know this. He's just basically summarizing stuff I already know. And that's what a lot of scholars actually say. He's actually doing nothing new. It's, 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 kind, of a, it, it's, it's kind of boring, nothing new. But I thought, well, I better read this carefully because I'm preaching on this. So I better read this. And so I'm reading this, and I'm going, wait a minute. Stephen is actually brilliant here. You know, what, he, what he's doing is like a jazz musician. And I checked this out with Father Steve. He said what I said about jazz was correct. He says, I love it when you talk about something you don't know very much about, but then it's just, it's just actually, it's actually right. So this is all I'm going to say about jazz music. <laughs> I think that was a compliment, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so he takes the basic script of the biblical storyline, and he improvs on the spot, in the moment. He comes up with this unique, personal, from the heart, summary of the biblical story, starting with Abraham, to Moses, to David, to the prophets, all the way to Jesus. And it's remarkable. The thing that struck me is that it is very obvious that Stephen has studied, he's, he's read, he's questioned, he's prayed, he's thought about it, he's debated it, he's talked about it, until it has become his own. You know, I just see, and, and this, I, I don't say this to shame anybody, but I, I, just, I just say this to say, if this is you, I just say there, there's hope, there's hope, you don't have to stay this way. But I see a lot of young men that were raised in the church, and young women too, they were raised in the church, they kind of have a child's knowledge of the faith, 
and then a very sophisticated knowledge of other fields and other philosophies, but they've never really, really studied, and then tried to live it, tried to obey it. Stephen has taken this, it's really personal, he's rooted in it, and he's drawing life from it. And at the end, at the very end, when he's actually, they're getting ready to throw stones at him and kill him, he is actually rehearsing his rootedness in Jesus. So in verse 56, it says, Behold, I see, Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's a reference to Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when Jesus was baptized and the heavens were opened. So Peter is rooted in the baptism of Jesus. And then in verse 59, he says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's exactly what Jesus said when he was dying on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And then in verse 60, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who is that? That's Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. His life has become cruciform. He's walked with Jesus so long. He's been rooted in this story, drawing life from Jesus, drawing forgiveness from Jesus, drawing hope from Jesus, patterning his life after what, what we do every Sunday around the Eucharistic table, patterning his life after that until it becomes the only way he can actually act. It becomes habitual. How do you do that? How do you get there? I was talking to a friend of mine, Richard, Dr. Richard Gibson, my scholar in residence, one of my scholars in residence at Wheaton College, and we were talking about the rise of Stoicism, especially among young white men, but among a lot of people too. So stoicism is making a comeback. I don't know if you knew this, but one of the things about Stoicism is it's pretty much a do-it-yourself project. You can develop the virtues in your life through your own abilities and through your own self-discipline. Well, that's where it severely departs from the biblical story. Because the biblical story not only gives us a vision of what the virtuous life looks like, but if that's all we have, it could either crush us or it could make us arrogant if we think we've achieved it. But the biblical story gives us hope through the fourth scene, which is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And it's really not a scene in and of itself. It's really, if this was like a play, that would be, it would be the stage and it would be the backdrop and it would be the ceiling. It would just be the whole environment. And that is the fullness of the Spirit. It's just... The whole story is wrapped in that. So chapter 6, verse 5, when it describes Stephen, how does it describe him? It describes him as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then at the very end of the story, in chapter 7, verse 55, it says again, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. So in chapter 1, Jesus promises the descent of the Spirit. In chapter 2, the Spirit descends on Pentecost. In chapter, and later in chapter 2, Peter stands up and says, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. I, this was coming, and now it's come. Your sons and daughters, the Spirit of God is going to descend on them. And here's the thing. It comes to real people. It really comes. Here's Stephen. We don't know anything about his education. We don't know anything about what he did for gainful employment. He seems to be a pretty ordinary guy, and yet he is an available guy. 
He's available to the Holy Spirit. So getting back to my house analogy, this would be like living in the house and it's getting a little stuffy in here. I don't know if I can take this anymore. Well, open the windows. There's a nice breeze outside. So open the windows and let the breeze in. Let the refreshing wind of the Holy Spirit come in. That's the key to virtue. The key to the cruciform life is just opening the window and saying, praying, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, come. Let me back up to Acts chapter 2, verse 21, because this is, to me, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, anyone, from any background, from any language, from any life situation, with any problem, with any sin, with any particular hopes or desires, whether they're good desires or twisted desires. Anyone, you, anyone with a broken line, anyone with a broken past, today, now, you can call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And that word saved not only means forgiven, which is beautiful, but it's so holistic, it's so all-encompassing, it's about wholeness, it's about health, it's about spiritual healing and flourishing. It's about the freedom of the Holy Spirit. It is the most hopeful, dignifying, noble word in the Bible. You can call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That name has power. That name through the Holy Spirit can fill you. No matter how damaged, broken, toxic, depraved, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's the message that we all need to hear on this Father's Day. Open the window. Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe that window is pretty crusty. Maybe you're afraid to open it. Maybe... You forgot how to open it. But according to Peter's speech in Acts 2, all you need to do is call on the name of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.